you look at the history of military medicine, it's so much of it is the history of military ID. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we are privileged to speak with Dr. Heather Yun. She is a Yale Medical School graduate and is board certified in internal medicine and infectious disease after finishing her residency and fellowship training in the military at Sashek in San Antonio. She is actively involved in graduate medical education and has received numerous academic awards for clinical and research excellence. She is a colonel in the Air Force and is currently the Deputy Commander for Medical Services at Brook Army Medical Center. She has deployed once to the Middle East and has taught numerous courses focused on operational infectious disease topics. Welcome to War Docs. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Yoon. Great. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's really an honor to be on the show. So what led you to military medicine? Well, I think like many of us, I was a mercenary looking for a way to get medical school paid for primarily. I also had spent a summer overseas and I think I was feeling a little bit more uh, of a sense of what it was to be an American and service has always seemed like a good idea to me, just in general, um, kind of wired for service. I don't think I realized the extent of my genetic imprinting. My dad was an army medic actually at Fort Campbell when I was born and was in the guard for a while. And then three out of my four grandparents were army, uh, veterans. My grandmother actually served in the army nurse corps in World War II. She was Canadian who thought this was a good idea for some reason. And then my grandfathers were both World War II vets also. So I think I had some genetic imprinting to go along with the mercenary need for a scholarship. You have trained in infectious disease. What does an infectious disease doctor do in the military? Yeah. So uh, infectious disease docs in the military can do a number of different jobs I can speak to my job at BAMSI, which actually incorporates what most of those in, uh, entail. But clinically, we do, it's a pretty inpatient heavy specialty, although we do outpatient clinic also. We have even some primary care for HIV infected patients. We do outpatient travel medicine, things like, uh, you know, outpatient consults for various kind of chronic infectious diseases and, you know, just things where people are concerned they might have an infectious disease and they're not sure what it is. But most of our consults are on the inpatient side. We also do uh, a fair bit of in just internal medicine, inpatient internal medicine. ID tends to be a pretty teaching heavy specialty. Um, our procedure really is teaching and then, you know, clinical reasoning and literature reviews. So, we spend a lot of time on education of, you know, not just our own fellows, but residents and medical students and nurses and patients and everybody else. We're a pretty research heavy specialty, I think, in the military and in general. And uh, most of us in, in involved with GME programs in particular are also involved with research of some kind. And then we were doing things like quality improvement sort of before that was a thing um, with regard to infection prevention and control, antimicrobial stewardship, and things like that. And then we also get to do a fair bit of population health, things like epi, epi and surveillance with trainee health and, uh, you know, large population movements involving deployments. We get involved with sort of outbreak management and, and preventive care. So really 
across the spectrum of what uh, a civilian ID doctor might do. We get to do all of that and then plus a kind of extra focus on in particular tropical and international medicine. So I know that the, the Army and the Navy has ID docs as well. Where on the battlefield does an ID doc go or where, where in a wartime? Yeah, so actually um, the Air Force has a, a, a unit-specific code for infectious disease doctors to deploy. And those right now are mostly assigned to these teams that are around movement of patients with high-consequence infectious disease problems like you know, if somebody were to have a viral hemorrhagic fever like Ebola virus disease um, and, and the patient was going to be moved, then ID doctors would be part of that team in the Air Force. ID doctors mostly deploy in all three services, however, as either internists. During my deployment, I was uh, an internist being used for intensive care, really, and that's what a lot of us end up getting used for downrange in the Air Force. And, you know, if in, in the Army, they might be used as an internist or even as a 62 Bravo, a GMO-type position. So what prepares you as an infectious disease doctor to do critical care when you're deployed? Right. So good question. Internal medicine training involves a fair bit of critical care. And then I think actually among the medical subspecialties, ID is one of the better suited specialties to do critical care just because we spend so much time of our, our inpatient consult time actually in the ICU and largely in the surgical and trauma and burn ICUs because those patients are high risk for infectious complications. So we're pretty familiar with that landscape. Um, but obviously things like C-STARS are used as deployment training. And then I think everybody goes back and reads kind of those primers again and tries to get uh, some procedural experience again before they deploy as an intensivist. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, ID docs doing a lot of research. Have there been any significant or what significant contributions has military ID made to the field of medicine, let's say in the last 10 to 15 years? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the history of military medicine, it's so much of it is the history of military ID. So if you want to talk about the last 10 to 15 years, we can talk about development of antimalarials that are on the market, like tofenaquin is the most recently approved one. But actually, I think every antimalarial that is approved by the FDA, um, the DOD had a hand in developing. developing. Um, the DOD has had a hand in developing multiple vaccines that are currently licensed and, and others that are in the market evolving for malaria and dengue and things like that. And then we spent a lot of time with actually the ID community has spent a lot of time with HIV research that I think gets less visibility from the DOD, but actually contributes quite a lot to the civilian literature. And then, um, you know, we were greatly involved with kind of identifying um, consequences, infection, infectious consequences of combat trauma. So we've had a lot of issues over the years with multidrug resistant organisms uh, infecting combat casualties after trauma. And so defining that and better understanding kind of the risk factors for that and what to do about it. Those are some of the more recent contributions. Tell us about your first assignment after your ID fellowship and did you feel prepared? Yeah. Okay. So my first assignment was uh, at Wilford Hall. I was a faculty member. And during that first year, I had, I became the medical director of infection control, like on July 1st. I became the liaison to trainee health, um, the infectious disease liaison to trainee health. And that year was the year that there was a huge novel 
adenovirus serotype that emerged that actually caused an enormous outbreak at Lackland and infected over a thousand basic trainees and included some very high visibility, even casualties. I became the associate program director of the ID fellowship about two months after graduating. Actually, I hadn't gotten my board scores back yet and I was home on maternity leave with my newborn um, when I found out about that. So uh, it was a little bit getting shot out of a cannon that first year between the four of, I think there were five of us at Wolford Hall at that time and we had a cumulative of four years of experience between the five of us. No, I did not feel overly well prepared that first year, although I think it did frame what a lot of my uh, perspective would be for the rest of my military career, which was that the discomfort zone is where the learning happens. It's where growth happens. And if you feel fully good at your job, like you have complete mastery and, you know, empress of the universe, then it's probably time to move on to something else because, you know, you've done everything that you could do and you've learned what you could learn from it. So, uh, I think in that respect, it was a very good first year for me because it got me used to what growth looks like. So what do you know now that you wish you knew when you finished your training before your first assignment? I think I know a lot about how to manage my own expectations of myself. I know a lot more about kind of the long view and patience. Obviously, I've matured a lot as a clinician. I have learned a lot about teaching. I think if I was to go back and, and tell myself just that one thing, it would be like, it's going to be okay. Really showing up, just showing up, doing your best is really just 95% of this day after day. And you don't have to be in such a hurry. You're not going to get everything right all the time, but just, uh, you know, have a sense of humility about it. You're going to end up learning what you need to learn. So tell us a little bit about your uh, deployment in Afghanistan. Yeah, so it was 2011, um, and I was, uh, again, the sort of trauma intensivist at Bagram. At that time, it was very busy time. It was lots of uh, activity, kinetic activity, lots of war wounded. We took care of something like 600 critically ill injured patients while I was there over a six-month time period. And, you know, pretty evenly split between service members and then like coalition forces and uh, local nationals. And uh, it was a busy time for sure. It was uh, mostly critical care, although I ended up doing quite a lot of ID consults while I was there. Obviously I was sort of running the ICU, so I didn't have to do consults on my own patients, but that's a very high risk environment, obviously in the ICU in general for infectious disease complications. And then being as when, as we were, you know, in a place that was endemic for malaria, as well as other rickettsial diseases like Q fever. And in as much as we import people, you know, when you're deployed, nobody hardly is from there. People are from all over the place and they go get coccidiodomycosis right before they come to Afghanistan and at Fort Irwin or they are a contractor from Bangladesh and they show up with, you know, meningococcal disease or something like that. So there was actually quite a lot of just regular ID business, uh, either on the inpatient side or for outpatient consults. And then I did a lot of infection control work while I was there because we were still struggling with lots of multidrug resistant organisms. And the bulk of my research up until that point had been in that population with those patients, with those organisms, and with regard to infection control. So I spent a lot of time sort of um, putting policies into place and doing education and trying to make sure everything was as optimized as it could be in that regard. Is there any particular memorable case that comes to mind when you were deployed 
Well, yeah, there were a lot of them. And honestly, they were hard cases. I mean, the cases that you remember were the ones that were the worst, more or less. It was an interesting patient care experience because like every patient, the diagnosis was dismounted IED pretty much. That was the admitting diagnosis. And routinely in the ICU, just every patient had multi-extremity amputations. And, you know, we had some that had burns and we had plenty that had uh, neurologic trauma, penetrating trauma related to fragments and things like that. There was one little girl that I took care of quite early because, of course, we took care of pediatric patients too. And this was this was a formative thing for my deployment experience, actually, because at the time I had, well, I have three kids and they were all pretty young at the time that I deployed. I think my oldest was seven and I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I had all the, you know, feelings like you do before you leave your kids and go to Afghanistan, including all the mom girls of like, why am I doing this? Who decides to do this? Um, you know, moms should be there for their kids, all that kind of stuff. And then I went and I had only been there maybe two weeks and this little girl got admitted to the hospital and she had a penetrating injury to the brain. And she was about the same age as my daughter and her parents were not around. Nobody knew really what had happened to them or if they would ever come by. And of course she was, you know, injured in pain also, you know, in this American ICU with all these people that are speaking different languages and basically it might as well be a different planet. So we were taking turns just kind of trying to, you know, provide physical comfort for her and all of that. Um, and at that same time, my sister was visiting my kids and like sending me pictures of them at SeaWorld, you know. So that was uh, early on kind of immunization against feeling sorry for my kids or feeling sorry for myself. It was, okay, this is important. Um and actually, somebody else's kids need me more than my own kids right now. My own kids are kind of the most blessed children in the universe. Uh, and so this is good and proper. What was your biggest challenge on deployment? The biggest challenge probably was the the patient load and what kind of patients we were seeing. Just the, frankly, the psychological toll and the emotional toll on the staff was really considerable Physicians can get PTSD too, and, uh, and nurses, and certainly combat stress is a reality in that environment. Um, not just for infantrymen and, you know, people kicking doors down, but also for, um, hospital staff members that are trying to figure out how to best respond in situations like that. So, I mean, I think that was the biggest challenge. Honestly, we used to, we had a, a gratitude board that, we started doing in the doc box while I was there, like the doctor's workroom had a whiteboard in it. You had to write three things on the doc box whiteboard every day that you were thankful for. And they couldn't be ironic. It couldn't be like, at least I'm not at X base, which is getting rocketed more than this base. And it couldn't repeat, you know, you had to have like something new every day. It could be as minor as like free bottled water <laughs> or surgery plus medicine equals BFF. Um, that was one that I remember it. So that was that was one thing that we did to try to to try to ward off just the uh, the grind of taking care of, you know, young patients who every day we saw just had had their lives irrevocably changed. So you mentioned that you see sometimes some unusual illnesses from contractors and other people. What would you tell someone who's not trained in infectious disease to do when they're treating patients 
who have a disease that we may not commonly see in the United States? Um, call us. Yeah, actually, we even at the time, we had a very busy email consult line through AKO. And then now we're uh, engaged with the advisor program. So we actually ID gets just about more calls, I think, through that program than anybody else, because it's really hard to be an expert in things that you, you know, maybe read about for three days when you were a medical student 20 years ago. Um, and we have to look up that stuff, too if we're treating plague for the first time or whatever, um, but call us on the phone. That's, uh, that's really your best strategy and we'll do what we, everything that we can to support you. So besides deployments, I know that ID docs are involved in a lot of interesting training opportunities and maybe humanitarian missions. Have you had any really cool experiences that you'd like to share? Yeah. I mean, I've had a number of really cool experiences. I got to go to, to Egypt, to the Namru lab out there when I was a fellow for our tropical medicine course and get around Cairo and Alexandria. We went to Luxor. We were out there for several weeks. More recently, I went to Panama as um, part of New Horizons for sort of a information and education exchange between the tropical medicine docs and, uh, and parasitologists down there. And that was really cool. I sent you some photos. Um, we went down to the Darien Gap, which is kind of that jungle area right where North America ends and you're about to cross over into Colombia. And they do a lot of biosurveillance work there because that narrow isthmus of Panama is it's a place for a lot of human migration, but also a place where diseases that are endemic to South America, including things like yellow fever and various encephalitis viruses can very easily cross over and establish themselves in the North American vector populations. And so they do, you know, trapping of things like rodents and bats, but also small primates. So we went out into the jungle and like, you know, the howler monkeys are all around and they're showing us how you, you know, can bring one down with a tranquilizer dart basically to draw its blood and make sure it doesn't have yellow fever, et cetera. So we got to see that they darted a howler monkey that fell out of a tree into a net. It was like a circus net basically that they had prepositioned there to Anyway, I got the whole thing on video and it was incredible. So some really fun things. Um, so did, that you, are, did you get a howler monkey dart medal? You know, I wish they that? had one. And I did I did not dart the monkey myself, but we actually did practice shooting the tranquilizer gun at like fake monkeys in the trees that they had made out of garbage bags stuffed with, I don't know, leaves or something. And I was pretty good shot with that tranquilizer gun, I have to say. Expert marksman for monkey um, patrol or something. They don't have a badge for that yet. So what would you consider your best save as a military physician? Uh, I don't know about the best save, but there was a memorable one from a few years ago where it was actually the wife of one of our deployed physicians from Bamsi. And she came into the hospital with like two weeks of fever and had some pain with swallowing. And I think she was a little bit anemic, maybe leukopenic. And nobody could figure out what was going on with her. And of course, everybody was super concerned because the husband was deployed and there's five kids at home or something like that. And the fellow presented the case to me and the fellow had no idea what was going on, but presented the story of this woman who has on a biologic for a rheumatologic disease and then has all these symptoms. And they lived on some acreage out outside of town a little bit. 
Um, and so we, you know, just wrote this on the whiteboard and I made a problem list. And then I drew a Venn diagram with like infliximab, fever, and uh, chickens or something like that, because I think there were chickens involved with the story. And in the very center of this three-way Venn diagram was histoplasmosis. And so I was like, even before seeing the patient, I was like, she has disseminated histo and we need to start empiric amphotericin, which everybody thought was crazy because nobody starts empiric amphotericin. Histo is tough to diagnose though, and it can take weeks. And, you know, you, sometimes you have to get histopathology to prove it. So all of that eventually transpired. And she did indeed have disseminated histo like two weeks after we had started empiric amphotericin. And she was much better by that time we made the diagnosis, but it's one of those diseases that can have a real high mortality if it isn't uh, diagnosed early. So that was a pretty great save. And it was one where I, I think I finally met the husband like a year or two ago. And he said, I know you, you saved my wife. And that was pretty gratifying because yeah, actually we did, we did help save your wife. That was a good day. That's a great story. I was looking through your CV and I see that you're very much involved in a lot of research. Is there any research that you consider interesting that you've ever been involved in? Well, gosh, there are so many. And I think for a long time, I really didn't consider myself a researcher, but we have so many unique problem sets in our patients, right? We have a very unique population. They go places that nobody else goes. They do things that no one else does. They live in environments that nobody else really lives in. And some of my, some of my favorite studies actually have involved the basic military trainee population because they just have such unique challenges. We recently wrote a, a paper published in JAMA Internal Medicine looking at the COVID experience in the military basic trainees and trying to make an association between, uh, between what's going on in a unit in terms of demographics and symptoms and also things like cycle threshold on the PCR. And then what is the risk of an outbreak in that unit? Because obviously, you know, during COVID times, large groups of people living in congregate environments, um, that's a, a real setup for disaster if you don't have appropriate preventive medicine sorts of procedures in place. So that was a really fun one um, that I think ultimately really showed a lot of success with how we're managing COVID in that environment. But we've also just had some fun problems to try to solve in that population. We published an MMWR a few years ago after a bat was found in one of the sleeping areas for the basic trainees, uh, which prompted really kind of novel investigation and, and decision tree around what to do for rabies immunization and rabies prophylaxis in kind of a mass environment like that. But I also was just, I was really proud of a lot of the work that we did around multi-drug resistant organisms, uh, risk factors for those in, in the early days of Iraq and Afghanistan. If you received a multi-million dollar grant to study one thing in military medicine, what would it be? I think my first love was always around infection prevention and combat casualties. That was the thing that just hooked my heart when I was a fellow. And, you know, it's not, thank goodness right now, we don't have a ton of combat casualties to study this in, but I know we're not done with this. I know that the next time we have a big effort with a lot of casualties, wherever we are in the world, this is going to rear its head again. And so I would invest it into making sure that we had ongoing, excellent programs already in place 
to collect the data and to put into action, um, you know, interventions that we could study as far as what are we going to do that's going to reduce the risk of these in the future. So I think that's what I would do if I had a multi-million dollar grant for ID in the military. What advice would you give to a 20-year-old friend or family member who is interested in medicine and really wanted your advice about your experience in the military? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's story is a little bit different. I never could have foreseen that I was going to do all this time, right? I had a three-year HPSB scholarship, and I certainly didn't start out with some kind of designs on doing a whole career and all the various jobs and things that I've done. But my advice to everybody really starting out is to to not worry about the discomfort zone again, because I think that's where learning happens. To really be open to opportunities, because if you're try, if you're going to try to grow something, you've got to spill a lot of seeds, and not all of them are going to grow. And you you know you can't expect every effort to lead to something. So you know it's kind of trendy to to tell people like that they have to learn how to say no. But I think it's more important for our folks when they're young to learn how to say yes, because we tend to not want to overextend ourselves. We tend to worry about like, oh, what if I'm going to get out? What if I'm not going to do this? What if I'm going to do that? But just, you know, fully invest in where you are right now. Do dig into what is inspiring to you and you know, guaranteed you will see growth and dividends in the future related to that. What is one story from your military career that you would want for your great-grandchildren to hear? You know, I know one story that I will for for sure tell them, and I'll tell you in a minute, but, but I'll, I'll also add the disclaimer that I don't think I'm done processing the stories of 2020 yet, because I frankly think that my grandchildren are going to hear a lot about the pandemic um, from the perspective of an ID doctor in a leadership role as that started rolling down the pike. But the story that I tell everybody really is one of those stories that illustrated to me the value of military medicine and helped me understand why the Air Force had paid for me to go to Yale Medical School back in the day. And that was actually in Manus in Kyrgyzstan while we were on our way down range. So we had a sort of a team from Wilford Hall of medical people that was going to man the ICU at Bath. And it was me and there was a nephrologist and there were some nurses and respiratory therapists and whatnot. And we were, you know, a bunch of moms and not super hua and um, looked kind of silly in our body armor. And we had to schlep all this stuff like through the... Manus. And then, um, you know, that first day we showed up, get your bedding and set it up and then go to the defect for your meatloaf on a cardboard tray. And we were looking around trying to figure out where we're going to sit because it's not like there's tables for the pogues from Lackland, right? You got to go find a space somewhere. And the only space was at this big table full of these guys, Marines that were clearly coming back from R&R or something because their uniforms are pretty banged up, you know, so we introduced ourselves. Hello, can we sit here? Please and thank you. And, you know, the pleasantries and what do you do? Oh, we're Marines and we, you know, kick doors down and do the things. And they said, what about you? What do you do? And we're like, oh, we're medical and we're going to Bath to work the ICU. And, uh, and they looked at us and they were like, whoa, you guys are hardcore. And we, 
you know, like I'm laughing, but they're not laughing even a little bit. They were like, yeah, no, seriously, you're super hardcore because we know that you guys are the best and whatever happens to us down there, like you're totally going to take care of it and get us home again. And it was true. <laughs> we did. We totally took care of it and got them home again when those things happened. But that was one of those illustrative moments of like, nah, this is really what this is what the army would pay a doctor to do. This is what the air force would pay a doctor to do. This is the value that we add here. Um, so I guarantee my grandchildren will hear about that. My kids have certainly heard it, heard about it plenty of times. You know, it's one of those things that's really written into the tapestry of our family's history at this point of how we all got to extend ourselves to, um, you know, really be an answer to prayer for other people's children. You've had so many experiences and, and, and now you're in a leadership position. Is there anything about military medicine that keeps you up at night? You know, the, the eternal tension between the ready medical force and the medically ready force, I don't think anybody yet has designed a way out of that paradox, although certainly many have tried and, and are trying. I always, I always worry about just uh retention i think that we we invest a lot in training people and getting them all set particularly as physicians with an understanding that there's going to be a super short half-life and then they're going to go and we're going to train some more that that look just like them to do their job and i think that just it leads to a lot of turbulence and vulnerability and I think small changes in the context, you know, as we transition to DHA, as things like blended retirement system come out, um, as rumors get started about, you know, this GME program is getting looked at to be cut or whatever. I think all of those things can have pretty serious consequences on our force, which, you know, I'm not worried about the doctors really. Like we can go out and get jobs doing, you know, medicine really in any civilian hospital in the U.S., but it's those patients that um, really have those unique needs and those unique circumstances. It's those Marines um, that are about to go downrange again and kick doors down that they need us there to solve their clinical problems and to answer the research questions and to get them home again. So anything that really threatens the stability of that force and would lead to problems in in continuing to be able to generate those physicians uh, and retain them. I think those things keep me up at night a little bit. What changes do you see in military medicine to improve battlefield care in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I certainly, I think um, advances that have been made with virtual care, you know, there's still limitations around, are you going to have telephone access or you're going to have internet access and all of that. But, you know, even just over the course of my 20 years of doing this, I've seen how much more mature we've become in our ability to extend really real-time specialty care to very austere circumstances through things like the advisor program. And I think our experience with COVID doing virtual health is really going to inform how medical care looks in general, but um, specifically in this context for a long time to come. Certainly simulation, I mean, that is something that I think uh, can enhance training in ways that didn't exist very well 20 years ago. And I, I suspect 10 or 20 years from now, it'll look very different than it does later. So those are a couple of things. But I also think that we're putting more energy into trying to make sure that that 
that medical units are actually trained in ways that are relevant to what they're going to be doing downrange. So I'm, I'm optimistic that um, we will have more and more real expert curriculum development and training so that when people do go downrange, you know, it's more than just like I did my my residency six years ago, and I sort of remember how to do critical care related to that, but that that the training that people get will really be directed at what they're going to be doing. What do you think that you'll miss most when you leave military medicine? Oh, there's no, what do I think? Um, it'll be my colleagues for sure. Um, I never could have expected how much I would love the people that I work with, the kinds of relationships that would be built, really the brother and sisterhood. And I know that's what people miss when they get out of the military because they tell you that. But I've really been fortunate to work with some first-class people who absolutely, you know, I would follow into any foxhole. And uh, I can't imagine replicating that in any civilian environment. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think we should? You know, I think um, the thing that I always tell people just is to to look for that why, look for that inspiration, because I think all of us in military medicine have something very unique that we can contribute to our patient population. And, you know, a lot of the things that cause burnout, we can't really make them go away. We can't turn off the cold water if the cold water is related to you know, computer problems and struggling with the EHR and, you know, a lot of the same things that just people wrestle with even in civilian hospitals. But but we can turn up the hot water really by focusing on that why and that inspiration and that th- those Kairos moments where heaven meets earth and like the purpose of your life is really, really crystal clear. So, Look for those things that are um, really unique and beautiful and majestic about your own career and then show others, please. Well, thanks for your time. It's been great. And so we really appreciate uh, you spending time on WarDocs and uh, letting us hear your experiences and you know, kind of doing what you can to preserve the oral history of military medicine. Great. Well, thanks again. I really am honored by the invitation. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of WarDocs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.